Hello, I'm Jensen Beeler. And I'm Quentin Wilson. And together we are the Two Enthusiasts Podcast. The Two Enthusiasts Podcast, your favorite automotive podcast. Why are we automotive? Is that what they have us labeled now? And I think I think we're labeled under professional, which is clearly wrong. <laughs> Just that is not that is not correct. Is this an, an Apple land? Well, yeah, that's the Apple one. But I think does that come from our RSS feed? I I don't know. I'd have to go back and check. It comes from the RSS feed. Uh, that must come from SoundCloud or someone. Uh, I don't know. Now, why are you saying automotive? What's your deal? Did you see my Instagram lately? Oh, I did see the something with the Ferrari. Something with the Ferrari. A lot of speculation that maybe asphalt and rubber was going to the dark side of four wheels. Uh, We're not. Yeah. Although I did get to drive a Ferrari and that was rad and maybe we should talk about it. I don't know. Sure. Cookies? Like Cookie? Cookie? Double stuff Oreo? Oh, man. So good. I like normal. The guys at Motocorsa really? like the double stuff. No, double yeah. stuff. Ugh. What? I don't like... Are you the, a heathen? What is wrong no, with you? I'm not big into the super... The the best part is the creamy white filling. No, I'd take all that out. If if I had to choose one or the other, I would take that out. I love the chocolate. I don't even know you sometimes. Like, <laughs> I, just, I just question like the whole thing. I do want to talk a little bit of newsy stuff, and I can actually pull the news up while it's on the TV. Look at mm, that. Mm-hmm. You, were, you were talking hate about this one right mm, here. Mm-hmm. Triumph, the... The big scrambler tease, as I mm. call it, because it is a big scrambler from Triumph. <laughs> See what I did there? That's uh-huh. a play on words. Yeah. Where do you think I got that from, Quentin? Uh, Who do you think has been influencing me on that world? <laughs> yeah, it's a triumph for you, I'm sure. Uh, at least I'm not victorious about <laughs> it. So I, I dig this bike. You were a little poopy. It's the Triumph Scrambler 1200. It's basically a <laughs> desert sled competitor. Uh, they're putting the high, from what I understand, they're putting the high torque 1200cc parallel twin engine uh, in there. So it'll be so about awful. 80 horsepower. It's and so gross. It's so heavy. I'd love to know how heavy it is. I don't know. I, I'd be curious to see how heavy. I don't think it's going to be super light. <laughs> no i, I think it's imagine. gonna be closer to like 450 at the curb maybe dry with no battery and no fork know. oil and, i don't know how and much, no brake fluid i should have looked this up before how much does a scrambler and or the, how much does the bonneville weigh the fuel tank full of bonneville he, weighs a bit, he, helium it? yeah they're all and it's all that crankcase crankshaft it's all like at the heart and the core of the bike hold on i have to go to the modern classic section of their <laughs> website Ooh, they have something called a street cup Oh, they have so many. Look at this. There's like <laughs> 12 of these damn things. It's a, is it the street cup like a pimp cup? That's the, the gold <laughs> festooned. <laughs> Two bikes, one cup. Is that? <laughs> that's all. That's not something that's else. That's definitely triumph for sure. <laughs> oh, haters going to hate. <laughs> They're selling these things by the boatload though. Yeah. They are. Dimensions and weight. How strong? Five hundred five. Oh fuck me! Five hundred pounds dry. <laughs> Four hundred and ninety-four pounds dry. Oh, this could be a disaster. <laughs> I have confidence. I I, uh, I reserve judgment until I see it. I, you know what? I guess the first time I saw it, I was thinking maybe it would be that twelve hundred that they have in the uh, in the enduro thing with the shaft drive, and they'd be like, they'd be like doubling down on this stupid scrambler hipster bullshit, and they'd be like, bam, we're gonna make it shaft drive with a triple. <laughs> That could be kind of cool too. I don't know. Uh huh. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's she'll be a big girl. Um, Both and spies tell me two different specs or two different models. One street focused. One mm. off road focused. Mm, what do you know? Um, kind of like a scrambler in a desert sled. <laughs> I don't think so much that way. I think it more like it mimics their the Tiger eight hundred, Tiger twelve hundred, where you've got mm-hmm. the XR and you have the XC, and then they kind of have like sub ones below that. Mm-hmm. But one's the you know, 19 inch 
front wheel and it's cast and the other yeah. one's got the uh, one's going to be like a Steve McQueen replica. Right. I mean, that's that's the vein that they're going on is that Steve yeah. McQueen ness of it all. <laughs> like a proper, yeah, you know, bar style bike. Bar style. Bar style. L.A. Barstow. 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 I, I say it with a twang. Yeah, I say fine. like a local. Sure. Is get that with the program. Yeah, I don't know about that. You get you get past the Central Valley. California changes, sir. Anything east of the 15 is Kentucky, my friend. Yeah, I know. Oh, I've been out there. Saw a really interesting thing recently where there was like a tumbleweed invasion in Victorville or Barstow, one of the two. And it was millions of tumbleweeds. There was some sort of strange thing that went down and, and like surrounding houses like the fire potential was super high and i thought that was wow that's an interesting dynamic that i had never seen or heard of until a recent story it was probably last fall would you consider a tumbleweed in- invasion like a first world problem <laughs> or, i, I mean because i can kind of see it going either way yeah not necessarily sure i mean when that's like your big problem is is bushes rolling through your town like, <laughs> your problems are pretty good that's it's, not bad. It's Bush League problem. It's a Bush really? League problem, right? <laughs> but but on the same token of it, like having having that kind of infestation be a prickly situation, wouldn't you say? <laughs> yeah. I had a lot of Mountain Dew today. Yeah. I Giddy up, that. sir. Sure. <laughs> you thought the last show was trouble. Yeah. Oh, boy. You kind of teased it before. Uh, I had a couple things I wanted to talk to you about today that were not newsy but they kind of come out of the things we did this weekend. So why don't we talk about what we did this weekend and then we'll, we'll jump into talking about stuff for new writers, which is why I wanted to talk about. Okay, cool. So what, what did you do? You, oh, what I do? Yeah, what did you do? Uh, um, I, I didn't go on the camping trip. No. Unfortunately. So sad. So sad. Wanted to. Uh, forgot that I had committed myself to going on this charity ride on Sunday. One of our friends, Colin, puts it together for uh, the Virginia Garcia clinics here in the Portland area which are healthcare clinics for those that don't have healthcare basically. And it turns out it, it supplies a lot of the healthcare needs to rural areas and also like migrant workers. And um, so we just saw their new facility in Beaverton yeah. and then they were showing us pictures of some of the facilities that they have on the campuses of like the local high schools and whatnot, yeah. huh. uh, making sure that the local kids get all the healthcare needs that they can, but they also are treating the family. Like they've used the school as kind of a hub to reach to these people because yeah. they know that they have to, their kids have to go there at yeah. some point. The parents yeah. have to go there at some point. It's kind of a, a central and location. I bet it almost would feel like a safe haven in the current climate of ICE like people, like if these are migrant people that might not be here and illegally, right? Right. But they're here doing the thing. They might be less scared if it's like at a high school. Okay. I need to get this toothache fixed or whatever the thing is. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's one of those things. I don't really care what your politics are, uh, how you view immigration and, and, and all that stuff. Uh, a human's a human being. And if they're in pain, they should be getting some sort of medical treatment yep. for it. Um, that's the, that's the easy one in my mind. So it was cool to be a part of that. I forgot, though, how much I hate riding in groups. Mm-hmm. I really, really, <laughs> I should know this because I've just, every time I ride in a group, but I'm really while, not jazzed. Right? Uh, I think the last time I rode in a group, like a big group, I ended up breaking my collarbone. So. And that was a couple of years ago on a, on a, on a, like a tour? Yeah, I was in, um, it was like a tour through like Germany, Switzerland, yeah. and Italy. Before that, I mean, when you were in LA or down in Santa Barbara or whatever, did you ever have a big group? 
things. Well, well that's one of the more the funny things because um, I mean that is kind of how I got into motorcycling. That's how I kind of got more entrenched in it. Was uh, I had a motorcycle, I lived in Santa Barbara, and I ended up meeting um, people you who know, ended up being really good friends through that, and we would go on group rides together. In fact, the last time I went up to the ridge for the track day, I was with one of my college buddies who was literally a guy who approached me in a parking lot. I was like, Hey man, cool bike. A bunch of my buddies are going riding on Saturday. Do you want to come with us? And became good friends. Now, one of the things that we were joking about while we were at the track day was it always seemed when we got more than four or five guys mm-hmm. together and there would invariably be someone new to the group mm-hmm. that the new guy in the group or someone else in the group would end up crashing. Mm-hmm. And it was just always a thing. It got to the point that it was so bad that we stopped inviting other people and we, it was just, we would yeah. just ride with each other. Really. And this happens over and over and over again, right? Right. It's kind of like a cream to the top type of this situation that always happens, which is tough because then the people that need it the most aren't, they never get to ride around with the people that can help them get better. And that's right? a great point because I was thinking about it the other day and I was thinking about like what kind of a miracle it is that I survived my early days sure. of motorcycling because sure. I didn't have, I didn't know anyone with a motorcycle. I wasn't involved. I didn't have like a a buddy or anyone that got it into me. I was just something I was like, Hey, that looks cool. I like riding bikes. Motorcycles are like bikes. Let's go do it. Took the MS. Oh, I didn't take the MSF course yet. I took, um, I just got my permit. And for what I was doing, that was in California. You can ride on the, the road. You just can't ride on the freeway and you can't ride at night. And I don't think you can have a passenger. So for, for me, it worked out fine. I was just doing like little weekend day trips through the twisty roads near my house. It's no big deal. So I hadn't done the MSF course, didn't really know what I was doing, was literally teaching myself everything. And you just think back to like, how did I not end up in a tree or something silly? I was very athletic. I was very coordinated. So I had some things kind of going in my favor, but I didn't really have anyone to be like, hey, listen, this is what you do. This is how you do it. And then started getting involved with some of the local rides out there that the dealerships were putting on. And I look back on it and these were nightmares. Like, like I remember the guy from the dealership that was leading our ride. He was one of those stoppies at every stop sign, wheelie at every on-ramp, you yeah. know, just being a hooligan. And yeah, sure enough, I think just maybe half of our rides, like the joke was half of our rides, people would crash. And the joke was that's how he got his sales. Would he just take people out mm. on rides? They'd crash their bikes and they come to him mm. and buy a new one. Right. Um, sales or service, whichever way it all works out. Whatever way it works out at all, you know, it all goes in the same pot at the end of the day. Uh-huh. Um, so you kind of look back and you're like, oh man, it's kind of a miracle I survived that. And the the, the random people, this was like early days of the internet. There was a couple like writing groups online. Like, yeah. I guess now the version would be like meetup.com, but this was like Yahoo groups. Sure. Something silly like yeah. that. Listservs? Listservs. Never did the listserv. It was Yahoo groups and then forums. Um. But I remember, like, I kind of got lucky on who I just randomly met being somewhat decent riders and somewhat cool-headed dudes. And there was definitely a range there, but survive. Survive long enough that I could get my license properly, go do MSF, get some miles under my belt. Did you ever crash on the street? No. Um, I'm trying to think my first crash on the street. I crashed on, I crashed the first time I went to the racetrack. And that was at Streets of Willow. And then the next time I crashed, I had a bunch had a bunch of crashes on the track with my R1. Uh, I shouldn't say a bunch. I probably crashed like three times. I'm trying to think my last, my first crash on the street, my first crash on the street 
this is an interesting story, was when I lived back in San Francisco right before I moved here, and I was on a press bike, and oh, I was yeah. lane splitting the on the MB freeway. Augusta one. Yeah. yeah. And um, this little old Russian lady just basically pinched me off. She and was Russian to get she, somewhere? She was in traffic. It was what it was. Yeah. And she, <laughs> she just made like a really quick, she made like one of those quick turns to try and, like her lane had stopped, and the lane next to her was moving, and she wanted to get into that lane, and did that right when I was next to her. And that was, you know... That was maybe, I'm trying to think how many years I've been riding. That was maybe like 12 years into riding a motorcycle before I crashed on the street. Hmm. I crashed Very a lucky. lot. I crashed from the get-go a bunch, when I, but I started when I was 15. I, I mean, I crashed the first time I rode a bike because my dad had me following him on a dirt road, and I, he, he turned, and then I saw that he was turning and hit the front brakes and just crashed, right? Yeah, you're not supposed to use the front brakes. Yeah. Well, on the dirt <laughs> in that way. Yeah, but lesson learned immediately. It was a really early thing, you know? So, I mean, really early. Literally the day I'm learning how to ride a motorcycle, I'm on a 125 NX Honda and I crash it. Okay, so now I know. Then from that time, my VTR 250 hit the ground a bunch. My CBR 600, it took from... It took many years to crash that bike. I actually did really good. And that would have been... The, the time that I'm thinking of the formative years of riding with other people or finding other people to ride with. Because when I had those other bikes, I was in high school. Nobody else I knew had motorcycles. I was the only one in my 400-person high school in Central Texas that had a bike for a really long time. So when I got my CBR 600 that I bought cheap from my cousin at like the year after or right after I graduated high school... I didn't have that many people I could ride with and it's central Texas. So there's not a whole lot of, it's not like a, a constant stream of awesome roads. It's usually just flat and straight unless you live in Austin. And even then it's not anywhere near like SoCal. But I remember going out with a couple guys from, from college station that were part of the local motorcycle club and they were both on 600s and trying to follow them and realizing very quickly that I was way out of my realm and um, needing to get to the point where I needed to go to a track day. Um, I knew it very early on because I'd been reading Sport Rider magazine already for years. And my knowledge base was coming straight from those guys at Sport Rider, mostly. Now, every once in a while, I'd glean something from a cycle world or motorcyclist. But really, it was Nick Ianach who was who wrote that article, The Pace, and I would talk about how you should ride and, and the, the, the commonalities between riders that ride on the street and that stay alive and those who don't, uh, or, or the commonalities between riding on track and what you use on track to, to ride better on the street, what you don't do that you do on track to ride on the street, like crossing the double yellows, speeding on straightaways, whatever that thing might be. So by the time I got to uh, go to MMI in Phoenix, that's when the first few times that I rode in big groups is we'd all, people in my class would ride up to Yarnell Hill or Prescott from Phoenix and I, at that time, whatever, for whatever reason, I had gotten good at riding and was one of the people that would be at the front, and I managed to stay out of trouble. But I, what I'll say is that from that point, I tried to remember this because back in that era, in the late 90s, I had this happen to me so many times that I lost count. But I've had like, I think at least three people crash behind me that I watched in my rearview mirror because I'd go into a corner and I just happened to look back and boom into a, a right, right into up a cliff or something, right? So I was in a weird way with that 
from the get-go, riding with people, riding a, a little bit faster than a lot of the people that were in my peer group, probably riding dangerously to a point, but I, you know, thinking about how I ride now relative to then, I really wasn't going too fast, but I was geared up. I, from early on, I would always try and wear as much gear as I could. Um, so that was helpful from a beginner standpoint. But as far as group rides, if we're going to talk about group rides, yeah, it was always a cluster. And it's usually ego-derived, uh, and it's usually uh, it's usually male, right? And that, for me, it was for the longest time. There's so much testosterone that happens. Everybody wants to show how fast they are, how much better they are at riding or whatever it is. And that was something that I witnessed. But I was also super young. So we're talking 19, 20, 21 when this was all going down. At going to MMI, and that that was like a you know a very formative time for me. Getting to LA, same deal. Watched it for years, but I was more lone wolf. I would not ride with other people that often, especially when I first moved to LA. For the longest time, I was the only person I knew that rode. I didn't pay attention to other people. I'd go up to the Angeles Crest Highway. I lived in Altadena, right at the base of the the crest, and I would ride there on Mondays because I worked at Burt's Motorcycle Mall or whatever. And I think about meeting people here and there, but always getting the heebie-jeebies from most of the, what I call skippies, right? The skippies that get out there with not enough gear or that just want to ride so fast that they're going over double yellows when they're going up the crest. They just want to show how fast they are. They wheelie at every single opportunity, et cetera, instead of mild-mannered, easygoing. And it took a while to get to that. But working at Pro Italia was the big sea change. But it was also my first experience with big group rides from a shop. The first time that ever happened, we did this, you know, sport touring ride that went from L.A. out to Ojai. And that was my first experience with the 33 up Lockwood Valley and back down, right? So a big ride for me then. And watching what happened, and there was like multiple people crashed on that ride and were big bikes, Ducatis. At the time, it was just like, holy crap, this this is what this is like. And then seeing it happen over and over again through the other group rides that would happen out of that shop. And it became a joke like, oh, we're going to have a group guide. Oh, good. We needed some service work, right? Because it would just be a matter of time. And no matter how much you sat everybody down or right at the beginning saying, hey, trying to ride a pace, try not to target fixate in front of the person in front of you, try and do this and that and that and this. And they're just like, nobody listens and everybody goes off in la-la land and they get all excited because they're in a group and there's something that happens in these groups. And you're right, there's a break point depending on the level of ridership that's going on, like four or five people. Sometimes you can get up to six, but it would have to be a really tight group of people that have ridden together where six people won't act like assholes or do stupid stuff, right? So... Man, it's a weird thing to think about. I hadn't pondered it in a while. But watching, like even this past weekend, I knew there was a uh, somewhere between 10 and 15 people that were going to be riding to this spot two hours south of Portland. I took a van with my bike in it so that I could also take all the food and the tent and whatever. I was like, I put my hand up to say, I will help out because I, I could do that on a Saturday while they were still working at the shop, right? And I was thinking... Late in the day, I hadn't considered it, but late in the day when they hadn't showed up and I was expecting them, I was thinking, oh man, that's a group ride. And there, you know, I got a text from Jet at Detroit Lake and I'm like, oh my God, they went to Detroit Lake. They're they're taking the gnarly roads, right? And I, I knew where they had to go from Detroit Lake to this spot, which was twisty, curvy, single lane, paved, but barely 
some some gnarly catch out corners, et cetera. And this is in the middle of Oregon, in the middle of the Cascade Range. I was like, man, and I was sweating it, but they made it. They made it okay. And a couple people mentioned that one of the reasons why they think they made it well is one of the guys had his kid with him and he was on an R3. So everybody else is on big board Ducatis, except for this kid who's probably 18 or 19 on an R3. And they thought that maybe everybody was on good behavior because of that. But really, what I think after hanging out with these people around a campfire was it was a lot of mild-mannered, easygoing people, the type of people that would want to go camping and adventure tour as opposed to the ones that are just all track all the time or want to go put knee down, right? This was a completely demographic, d- different demographic than your normal or what I had considered a normal Ducati ride. And it was cool. And it worked out really well for them. And I think everybody made it home safe, which is the bizarre, right, for me. And uh, we did a day ride the next day. And there was four of us that went away on this one specific ride because we chose a this one lake that you could do like 10 different rides out of this area and they would all be cool and interesting and have different views and different curvy roads. So we chose the simplest one. There was one gentleman with us that was on a KLR 650 who, as we were about to leave, unzips the bottoms of his pants and was like, I wish they would make pants that had gear that were like, or that had knee guards that were in the bottom. So because it's hot and I'm like, oh my gosh. Like this person's gonna go ride up this nasty gnarly road with a bunch of people on high level Ducatis, and we're like, we're our intention is to go quick but not hyper fast. And he was out. He was like, oh well, it's you know, in in an old Fulmer helmet from the like the late eighties. And I don't want, you know, what am I going to say? You know, at that time, that's the first time I'd encountered that in a while because I just don't ride with with that type of person, a beginner person, that often, or somebody that has a different view of motorcycling does motorcycling more casually yeah absolutely and i wasn't going to say well i'm not riding with you unless you put those pants back on i'm just like well you just got to be careful because yeah this is all dangerous stuff and what we're about to go it's pretty gnarly but you should be fine you're on a klr i i make a bunch of um assumptions with certain types of riders and you know i look at somebody's tires i look at somebody's gear all right this person had a fairly well-equipped bike that they'd obviously put a lot of love into um but it was, you know, beat to shit old KLR. Fair enough. All right. Do they care about this? Are do they you have a doohickey? Well, I didn't ask him. The other few people on KLRs did not have doohickeys, where one had it and one didn't. <laughs> they were doing a test to see if they needed it. So anyway, um, it ended up going okay, but I headed out first, and I was the lead rider in this four-person group. And it was okay. We stopped at some point. We got through the gnarly stuff. It was beautiful, whatever. We stop and we're at the top of a crest. We're looking over and then he gets behind me. And that's where the worry comes. Because like I said, when I've had crap people crashing behind me and it's happened a lot, but it's been a long time, then I have to be mindful. Well, am I going into this corner faster than what most people would? And that's what allows, right? And then they think they can go in because they've seen me smoothly go into the corner, but then don't realize that they have to. See, that's the thing. Like, I don't think that's something that's on you. It isn't. I, I'm a firm believer. Whenever I ride, at least well, I shouldn't say whenever because it's been so long and I don't really do it anymore. Back in the day when we do it and we have someone come ride with us, I'd be like, listen, I don't care how fast you ride. I don't give a crap because like, if we get there before you, you know, maximum time I'm waiting is like a couple minutes because at the end of the day, yeah. you're really not that far behind. No, you know, no the difference of doing. Sure. 80 miles an hour and 60 miles an hour really doesn't change the price of bread when we get to our destination. 
What I do care about is if I've got to spend a couple hours on the side of the road, pulling your bike out of a ditch, waiting for an ambulance, putting a tourniquet on your leg, doing any of these stupid things that might happen if you crash, then I'm going to care. Then I'm going to care a lot about how fast you were riding because you were riding too fast. So, it's, But it's always one of those things where I think people, and I don't know if it's testosterone and it's this idea of like, I need to prove something. I need to go. I need to do the thing. These guys are riding fast. So I'm going to ride fast. Or if it's an insecurity where it's like, oh man, everyone's a lot faster than me. I got to, I got to step it up and keep up with them because, you know, they're going to think I'm, I'm slow and they won't like me or, or yeah. whatever, yeah. whatever that sure. is, sure. whatever that, that driving point is needs to be, you need to become, you need to mature to the point in your motorcycling where you don't care anymore and like ride your own ride. And I think that's, that's the pace. That's where yeah. uh, Nick, Ina, Nick Ionach's story comes in because it's this idea of like you ride at your own pace. You ride with the pace that the road will allow you to ride safely and, you know, being able to cite the turns for gravel and keep an eye out for wildlife and keep an eye on the oncoming traffic and the traffic that's in your lane as well. And one of the things that drove me insane on our little group ride last weekend is I was behind a gentleman on a V-Strom. I don't know if I can make like a snarky or comment about a V-Strom. <laughs> But you know, I was judge. it a thousand or six fifty? It was a thousand because the six fifty gets more cred in my <laughs> the Weestrom. Yeah, yeah. But it was a farkled out Weestrom. It had all the the ADV farkles. He had all the high vis, the Schubert helmets, the hide and how tires. Farkin A. He was he was doing all the things, except knowing how to ride in a group. <laughs> you know, didn't didn't understand. Okay, staggered formation. No, that's didn't a big understand. Deal. Uh, and and didn't understand just kind of like holding your line like his whole thing that really got me was he was constantly swerving and making these almost emergency turns in his lane to go around like a leaf or something crazy so i would think oh man there must be debris because he just panic turned and you go oh no it's um it was like a leaf or it was like a you know like just a solitary little pebble it was something stupid yeah. crossing the double yellow a lot just like for no reason breaking at the apex of the turn like stab breaking it just wasn't smooth just wasn't confidence inspiring rider and you're just like i don't know what your jam is but in a group riding setting it's very unsettling to to watch someone gyrate and around and do all these things and then not do you know a, a, a staggered formation and smooth riding that that helps the riders behind them understand what's going on, on the yeah. road because if you're three four bikes back and you see someone whack their handlebars and do like a panic turn around a what, what might be a pothole or sure. or a tree limb or whatever it could be, you won't, you only that's your only information that you have. Like something's in the road, something's yeah. in the road. I need to get to get over, move over, and you've just translated that message all the way back to the riders behind you, and you're translating something wrong. You're translating. Yeah, you're crying wolf. With, yeah, basically. Yeah, sure. And it's really, uh, it's really distracting. I was surprised at how distracting it was for me to be behind him as a skilled rider and just being like, man, like you're really like, I'm having to work really hard to manage what you're doing in front of me, that it's distracting me from the other things on the road. And it takes away from the experience. It greatly. absolutely yep. takes away from the experience. So when that case, cause you're in, you're behind them and you're having to deal with it. This person I was talking about, once he was behind me, then I had to see what was going on. And I found out later and I hadn't, I was like, man, he's taking some wide lines, but apparently he was going into the, he was he was dipping in as if you're going around a left-hander. He was dipping into the other lane on these blind mountain corners, which was oh my god, there were so many opportunities. It would just be 
just you'd be smeared against the car. There's no way around it because a lot of these Oregon high mountain pass roads are just basically a single lane, maybe like a, a lane, lane and a half. half. Yep. Yeah. And it's but no line. No, no, not at all. Though the line there might be lines on the sides, maybe if you're lucky, but nothing in the center. So I was just it was uh, here. Here's the deal. I was deciding. All right, do I go super slow and take very conservative lines and be, you know, just slow and not have fun, or do I just leave this guy? Because if I leave him, then he doesn't have me to threshold break into the corner with and run up a wall, run up a you know. It's he'll have to ride his own pace. Exactly. Or the or he tries to ride over his head trying to keep up with me. But I know me and I know my limits, so I just said, I'm gone. Yeah, there's right. no one on a KLR is going to keep up with you. No, and, and I knew the road enough, right? So I knew it just enough to be like, all right. Like, uh, I'm not going to keep up with you on a KLR. It's just not going to – it had knobbies, I assume. Uh, yeah, it was streetish knobbies. And I bet if you were doing well in that road situation, you'd be surprised, right? Because it's so tight. But um, here's the deal. I just spent 2,100 miles with at least 120 pounds of baggage on my bike. And this that day – I had nothing, and it felt like my Multistrada felt like a freaking 450 Supermoto bike. It was, it was amazing, and fresh tires. So it was like, holy crap, this thing's awesome. And I was just feeling the oats and going pretty fast. I wouldn't say that I was riding eight tenths. I was probably still in the six, seven tenths realm, trying to leave some for that. I mean, we're in the woods, right? You're on a on a small road, but it opened up and it went to two lanes again on the other side of the mountain, and I was feeling pretty good. So I. I left him and I, I had the argument with somebody else that, well, which way do you go? And for me, I'd rather it would be better for my conscience to be gone and have that person on their own volition trying to keep up with me than them trying to follow me when they could see me and then making a mistake. I'd rather it be up to them completely, even though it's all up to them, mm -hmm. right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The burden's on them at the end of the day. That's the same. We see that sometimes in the press launches too. In fact, I think we talked about it a couple shows ago on one of the MV launches because there was one gentleman in particular, and I don't know if there was more, who was complaining of the pace of their group um, going through these you know tiny Italian roads. And it, and it is a little bit different riding in Italy, in Europe, just in general. Um, I don't know how to describe it. It's definitely different riding with, with press people than it's sure. not. That was actually one of the things that struck me riding on this charity ride because I'm so used to riding. In fact, all the group riding I've been doing for the last, you know, five, six, seven Super years high level people. has been with other journalists. And it, you know, three feet off someone's tail is considered normal. Yeah. And I kind of had to like have a moment. I was like, I am all up in this dude's business. And that's probably bothering him because yeah. normally people don't ride like that. And two, he was being super squirrely. So me being three feet up in his business is kind of a safety issue because yeah. it's like you're not doing things smoothly and predictably so the likelihood of something bad happening is, is probably higher and you had to kind of like dial that knob that knob back a little bit but um there is something to be said about you know it is your own ride and it is your own pace and you have to assess the dangers on yourself and we had that issue in, in italy where, you know we make some passes and passing italy is a lot closer like around vehicles and oncoming traffic yeah, is a sure. lot closer than what you have here and other and part of it is because European motorists are trained to pull to the right when they see someone passing in the oncoming lane. They'll let they'll give you some space. Yeah. In theory, you can kind of pass between yeah. two vehicles sure. in Europe with one vehicle being oncoming. It, it turns out because you can do they'll that give in you the enough US room too. for it. You can do that. 
If you're a little bit on the wild side. <laughs> yeah, but I would just say it's a little bit less right. of a gamble in Absolutely. Europe than it is here. And sure. I don't recommend doing it. It's still not a good idea, but you'll see people give you space. You'll see people pull over to the side yeah. and, and make this center lane channel yeah. for you to do it because that's what they expect motorcyclists to do. And it's different than it is here. And if you're not comfortable with that, if you don't have that European playbook or that skill set sharp sharpened, I should say, that's going to be really a foreign and difficult thing to do. And and this is a gentleman, I don't see at very many press launches riding bikes. So maybe doesn't have that skill set readily available. Um, not to say that they're a bad rider. It's just one of those, it's a, you know, um, a relativist skill. Sure. Now, if you cross the double yellows passing somebody, does it mean you're going hard in the paint? You're definitely going hard in the paint, okay. sir. I like yeah. that. I do that a lot. Yeah. You're, you're crossing the paint yeah. to go hard in the paint. <laughs> That's how that works. Well, what can we what can we say for those who are listening that are beginners as far as like group rides can be good. I don't want to poo-poo group rides, right? No, absolutely. Group rides, uh, yeah, because I, I said it myself. I think group rides are probably part of what kept me kind of in check and helped me learn and and kept me kind of safe. It also kind of got wasn't doing that. It's there's a it was up in your skill level, I'm sure, at some point. It's up in my skill level, and I can think of a couple close calls that I had because I was chasing people that I shouldn't have been chasing. But also, I think by riding with the right people, it helped me not do stupid things. Because yeah. if I'd been riding with the yeah. wrong people, I would have definitely been stupid things. I've been, or I would at least had more peer pressure and been more inclined to be doing the stupid things. I think, I think truthfully, for from a group ride perspective, for a new rider, the biggest thing is a rider's meeting beforehand. Yeah. And sitting down sure. and saying, this is our route. This is our pace. This is where we're going. We're going to stop at all stop signs. If there isn't a guy or gal with you um, or they can't see the turn, like if you're turning onto a different road, if they're not there to see the turn, you know, you sit and you wait, you wait for them yep. and you kind of relay that back. Um, having those kind of things explained and having kind of a, an understanding of what the rules are, um, talking about you know, hand signals and, and turnoffs and emergency ideas. Who's got a safety kit? Who's who's trained in first aid CPR? Does anyone have like a, a CPR mask or anything like that? Um, those are good conversations to have before a ride and to get everyone's kind of get everyone on the same page. I think that's the biggest thing is getting everyone on the same page so we know what the expectations are. Yeah. Because then that helps all the other riders maintain their own pace within that that framework. We're like, okay, like yeah, because you know, you and I went out with with some friends in Eastern Oregon and there's a bunch of hall assers and a couple of people that weren't hall assers and like, okay, we're going to go off and, and rail down and leave darkies on the street and do our thing. And we'll meet you in fossil and we're going to stop at fossil and grab an ice cream and, yep. and do our thing. And we'll see you there. Yeah, that's been a long time, but it's we, been a long time. Yeah. We got to fix that. Sure. But having that conversation of, okay, this is when we're going to meet up again. This is where we're going to be. Yeah. Okay. You know that we're going to turn right at the stop sign 12 miles down the road. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've been there before. It's got a giant tree. Yeah. The one with the giant tree. And didn't we get separated? We did because we didn't do a good job of, of, uh, of one point after that. that in a weird ass area where we're going on dirt roads and we got low on gas. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, so that's I'm, another thing to talk about. Hey, cause, um, in this ride, it's actually kind of funny. I ended up for a, a story that's way too long. I ended up going to the wrong place and had to double back and do all these things. By the time I got on the actual ride, I had maybe half a tank on my Street Fighter, which means I had like 50 miles of range. Yeah. So we get into the ride and we're going into like the middle of nowhere and I'm starting getting worried. And I'm like, I'm, I'm pretty far away from a gas station. I am going to run out of gas. And being able to at least communicate that to our, our ride leader and be like, hey, I'm pretty much out of gas. 
where's our nearest ra- our nearest gas station? How far away is our thing? It's like, oh, it's about 30 miles. I'm going like, my light literally just turned on when I parked. That could be a false light, but I know I'm only going to get 20, 25, 30 miles. Max was like, that's the red line. 30 miles is the red line. Sure. I might not make it. And we're going like, to have like a little conversation. Okay, well, you know, um, one of the riders is actually running a GSA. She's got an eight-gallon tank and a siphon. Why don't we just put you know half a gallon of fuel in your bike just to be safe, and that'll get you there for sure. We won't have to make a thing. We'd already stopped at a, yeah. a stopping point, and we're taking a break. I'm like, yep, let's do that. That's a good idea. Awesome. Yeah, Having sure. that communication of those of those kind of challenges, like, hey, I need to get fuel here. Hey, I'm getting hungry. Hey, I'm dehydrated. Hey, I want to go take a picture here. Don't wait up for me or do wait for me because I don't know the road. Yeah, Communication's huge, and not everyone rides with... Um, the helmet communication devices no, and, sure. and some people ride with them and they have different brands so they don't communicate with yep. each other which is a whole stupid thing that I'm not even going to get into. Um, I hate that. So having some sort of plan ahead of time having that kind of riders meeting ahead of time I think is huge. It can happen even with two people so that's something that uh, my partner Jet and I just recently got. Jet, Jet bought me for I think it was Valentine's Day bought us Scala is it? Scala rider yeah. Yeah and uh holy crap, does that make a difference, right? It's not critical, but, you know, very often it was like, hey, I got to pee. Hey, uh, I, um, you, lo- you got, left me. I got a cramp. Or yeah, you left me back here right too. Are you, are you still going to the same spot? Whatever the thing is. makes a huge difference. And then when you switch over, you get to listen to music and it actually, it's surprisingly good. Like the 18-year-old me that did that and got a ticket the first time I did that because I was hauling too much ass is a lot different than the me now. Now it kind of just puts me in a zone where I can uh, roll along. So those who are getting uh, into m- motorcycling, they a- actually it seems to be a good deal. Um, it's really good if you have a situation where you need to make phone calls and it works bizarrely well so i've taken a few phone calls on um i had the uh senna helmet the momentum helmet which has the built that's senna's own helmet that has the built-in communication system i take a i took a few phone calls on that and the other person on the other line didn't even know i was on a motorcycle and doing the thing bizarre really it was pretty impressive to see that technology um so there's there's some i'm not enamored with where that space is right now and 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 the level of sophistication and the ease of use and all that stuff but it's gotten a lot better than when i first started out riding motorcycles yeah, i'm glad i didn't have one in the beginning because i would have been frustrated with it and i would have then no. written it off no whereas now i have one that yeah it's not perfect but it works pretty well it's a little weird with the buttons and accessing it but you know what i, I don't i i that's the part that i still think is is lacking having one two three buttons is just not enough for what you're doing the controls maybe voice activation technology as it gets better will be yeah. better a better inter- uh, uh, interface and a better user interaction it's going to take Arai and Shui and that's the, the thing that it's going to take them doing it not some vaporware bullshit helmet company that's trying to do the same thing and then have heads up and do too much at once they just if if Arai made a helmet that had a really good internal communication system shoot i just saw one that was in the in the cycle gear catalog there's i don't know if it's built or whatever brand of helmet but it has a bluetooth thing inside it's going to take that it's going to take it being part of the helmet that's why i'm critical of all helmet manufacturers right now because this is this is a no-brainer and you partner with a senna and you partner with a scala rider or you partner with yep. wh- whoever and and you develop that technology together but all these helmet brands 
are just printing money by not really changing their technology, not really changing their manufacturing process and all that stuff. And truthfully, electronics is so outside their core wheelhouse. Like yeah. they're they're into materials and composites and graphic paint schemes and things like that. Sure. And that would be my my two second review of that Senna helmet. It's a horrible helmet. It's a fucking horrible helmet, but it's a great communication system. So if they could get more sophisticated on how they build a helmet, if they could get acquired or do something. Yeah, maybe that's one of the reasons they did it. Like, you know what? We might as well just make something. It's not going to be perfect, but maybe that'll get a ride to say, hey, we need to have your technology in our helmet. I think they've had such a hard time. And I know they build something special for uh, certain showy helmets. They have like a a direct insert. Um, Shoeberth has had for a while their own uh, communication system kind of insert. I think I think they have one with Senna now too. Well, I tell you this. I mean, there's some brands that are kind of doing add-on systems, but like an integrated, polished package where I'm not dealing with wires that are popping out and doing all these things. That it's so easy, and for the fact that it hasn't happened, that's why stupid companies like Scully can come onto the market and be like. Oh, hey, here it is. The helmet you've been asking for. Because this is the helmet we've been asking for. So. Well, I was surprised that even the Arai, I bought some new cheek pads because I was like, after riding for a year with the Arai Corsair X. Yes. Which yes. is the. Yeah. That, yeah. That's my go-to street helmet. I, I prefer it on the street a lot compared to the AGV, whereas I prefer the AGV to race with. So. It's just comfortable and wonderful, and I love it. And the optics are great. And anyway, I'm I'm all about. It. I love how well it breathes. Well, I went to buy new cheek pads, and I had to refit the speakers into the into the new cheek pads. And there were little tear out foam inserts for speakers yeah. in the pads. It's like that is awesome. The fact that they even now have that, probably ten years on, fifteen right. years on, right. pretty stoked. At least they're woke enough to make that happen. I thought it was good. Did you say woke? I did. All right. Awakened. I, I, I will no. I'm gonna. I'm gonna let you have that one. That they're woke. I normally hate that phrase, but you know what? They're fucking woke. <laughs> Even partially, right? Yeah, a lot of people hate that phrase, but it's unfortunately it's a really good way to to say it, and it sounds way better than awakened, right? I was awoken to the technology the other day. <laughs> yeah, it's a bad deal. It's a very. It's a very NPR. Yeah. Well, and I like that. I can see that now. I got to figure out how to put NPR in my. I guess I'll just have to have that station on my Spotify, which is what I use when riding. And then I have to figure out how to have a library on Spotify. So I've had to download a bunch. Oh my gosh, all the technologies, right? Yeah. That's the thing. Get so ba- you're, you're old, sir. I am. So get, we, so we've got off a little yeah, bit on the tangent. The, the, but that is a good hole. example, though. If if a, if a, a couple or a group of people are like serious about going on group rides, have a real deep think about making sure that you're all in the same system that that you can talk to each other on. I, we tried it one of the rides with uh, Colin, the same gentleman that that did the uh, Virginia Garcia, uh, Garcia yeah. ride. Yeah. He had a whole system that I fitted into a, a um, I fit into a an icon helmet. And it just didn't work very well. It was it was his system to then talk to, I think, even to his wife or something. It was like his loner. <laughs> and it was. And, you know, it worked sometimes, but not all the time. And, and I was a little poopy on it. So I, that's one of the reasons why I didn't get a new one. That was a few years ago. So anyway, it's something that should be thought of. As far as, like, how to get into it, it's the same deal, I would assume. I don't. I haven't had to get into a motorcycle ride in a very, very long time. So I don't know how I would. Do you go on whatever forum, local ridership, you know, is the Pacific Northwest Riders Forum. I'm sure there's plenty of ways to do it, 
but the beware is, you know, feel the people out for sure. I mean, are you just going to be in a group of GXSR 1000s? And that's what their MO is to just go and haul ass? Or is it going to be adventure tourers or et cetera? It does make a difference. And there, you know what? Yeah, there's a GSXR 1000 owner that might rather go with the adventure tours and just want to be on a sportier bike. But you're, you can profile them to a point. And then once you're in it, don't, don't have an expectation to keep up with everybody. Communicate beforehand well, and that way you know where you're going, and that way you're not in over your head, and you don't feel like you're going to get lost or, or taken advantage of in some way. I don't know what that would be, but a lot of people that are new to it are definitely on the back foot and feel very um, nervous about riding with others, but it is a good way to get better this side of going to a racetrack, which would then be probably the next conversation to have as far as new ridership right. because like i was saying earlier i identified super early on not because i wanted to race but because i wanted to be a better rider because i would read these things in the, in the motorcycle magazines about how much better you became as a rider to ride on track that i focused on that and i did a straight up a sport rider track day at streets of willow in 1996 i was still at mmi borrowed a trailer borrowed a set of leathers and i literally borrowed a set of bodywork for my R6 from an, or my uh, CBR 600 F2 from somebody else at school, and I was able to make it to this track day, and that was a big deal for me, and it opened my eyes to, oh man, I am well out of this round. I'm this is deep waters for me. I did it. I you got through woke. the day. I, you got woke. I got woke that day, but then that would allowed me to then have the the um, impulse to then go work as a corner worker for Keith Code schools that were in Phoenix while I was going to MMI, which then got me on track and got me around other people that could kind of help me and give me advice, et cetera. And then getting to LA, it was just like, boosh, all of a sudden you're around all the people all the time. And then you just had to be very wise about how you, how you uh, approached going out with rides with other people. I remember one time getting back from a ride and having the service manager at the shop I worked with, he says, I'll never forget it because he was—he said it was such a reverence. I was like, yeah, I went with so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. We went up Azusa Canyon. He was like, oof, swimming with some pretty big fishes there. And I was like, I, I guess what? He's like, yeah, those those guys ride real hard. Be careful. And he, he, he up to that point had never said anything like that to me. And it was just like, you know, ding, like you better pay attention to this. And I did. And that was, I mean, this is a guy who was, known and revered for his abilities to ride a Gixxer 1100 from the late 80s on the Angeles Crest Highway, right? He was a known fast guy. And him saying that kind of just calmed me down. And at the same time, then I I was like, okay, I need to start getting on track. And that's right before I started racing YSR 50s at all the local go-kart tracks, which was just another world. And I had this, basically, all the moons aligned, racing mini bikes, working at Pro Italia eventually, and then being around all the people at Pro Italia that were all high level and straight up when you worked on that Euro thing, especially at that time, there's a higher level of ridership in those circles than there was at the Japanese dealerships. It just was. It was the way it was. I'm not saying all Japanese dealership people at the time were all skippies, but the Jixers favored that relative to the Ducatis, relative to the Triumphs, the Guzis, and the Bomotas. So I was just super lucky to be at the base of the Angels Crest Highway and knock wood, not crash on that freaking road as much as I went up it, right? So I, shoot, I crashed on Azusa Canyon before work one day. That was the only time I think I ever crashed that CBR 600. And I broke my wrist and had to ride down the mountain with a broken wrist and 
uh, a broken bike, you know, and I, that again, little things like that teach you, but I was completely alone. It was a, a classic lone wolf situation. I do that. I did that a lot at that time. And I think it's, I was, I'm fortunate for that, but eventually I did get into doing group rides and I would ride with a couple of people, but I would try and stay away from the big ride, uh, big rides, rides for sure. The last few that we had done, probably some of the bigger ones, like I can't remember what we did that was a few years ago when we went out to Imnaha, but that was like six people maybe for a little while, something like that. And that was probably as max as I would have. Yeah, Five. was it? Okay. But that was it, right? And that worked out pretty well, but that'd be, that's about it. That's about what I'm comfortable with for sure. So let's talk about track days. Yep. I think that's a good, I think that's a good transition to get into to that because it is a little different than say street riding. Um, well, what's going on, Coda Kitty? I wish we had her mic'd up. Yeah, we got to get you it. Just it. We need a Coda Kitty cam. What are you doing? She's just like, uh, did you guys know that it's my dinner time? And can't you see how fluffy I am? I would like to keep this fluff up. Yeah. With some dinner. It's just, I, I know I have to vacuum that fluff every day. <laughs> little, you, you want to talk about tumbleweeds rolling through. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Hardwood floors. You, you definitely. Dust bunnies everywhere, You man. got the bunnies. Sure. Yeah. Um, the track days are a little different. Most because, well, one, the, the route, there's no real issue there. You're going to go around the track. You're going to do it a bunch of times. You'll figure it out pretty quick. And there's always structure. There's always a riders meeting. There's always a rider. That's what I was gonna say. There's always a riders meeting. They're gonna div you up into your groups of skill, and um, it's a lot. It's just a lot more structured. But I think, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but my perspective on track days, the, the biggest thing to do as a new rider is to stay calm, mm. because I mean, I go back to thinking about my early days as a track rider. And my experience at track days with what we call like C group riders or new riders, um, there always seems to be this level of anxiety. I'm going to get onto the racetrack. I'm going to go fast. And maybe some of it's adrenaline. It's the, the buzz oh, that sure. you get from coming off the track. But there's always seems to be this anxiety or this apprehension that just kind of makes people do bonehead things. Like <laughs> I literally, I remember, I remember watching a video of a guy and it was, this is a long time ago. This is 10, 15 years ago. Um, and he was getting on to, he was pitting out. I think he was on a Ducati, actually. You left the tire warmers he on? left the tire warmers on. And he gives a little gas and the bike goes all the way around to the right-hand side. And just by miracle, just kind of saves it. And it comes in, it lines back up and he gives it a little bit more gas. And it comes all the way around the left-hand side. I mean, he almost high-sided himself two, three times before someone finally was like, whoa, 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 stop, stop, stop. You left your tire warmers on. And I don't think it was the case of, oh, I don't know, you take these off. They're tire warmers. They keep you, they make the tires warm. I don't think it's one of those <laughs> no, stupid of things not. like that. Sure. I think it was, they were so amped and they had such a oh, tunnel yeah. vision thing of getting on onto the track and doing the thing that they forgot to take the tire warmers off. Just this basic, basic thing. Sure. And I mean, it's obviously, it's ridiculous and it's crazy and it's weird, but you know, take it down a couple pegs and. I'm sure I've done things like that, and I'm sure you've done things like that, Quentin, where, um, oh, I forgot to tighten my, tighten my chin strap, sure. add gas, yep. Um, yep. check my pressure, or whatever it was. Sure. No doubt. Can you imagine the sheer amounts of times that I've gone on racetracks? It's been, fuck, I would, I would 500 times in the 20 years I've been doing it, so I can't imagine, like, of course I've had to screw that up, but when you're in, when you're beginning, for sure. And there's just, dude, there's still, there's still butterflies 
even to this day, the first time I'm going out on a bike, whatever bike that might be, and I'm, I'm heading out on track, there's always that little butterfly situation of, um, for me now, it's more, is the bike okay? Did I set the pressures? You know, things like that. Or is the bike going to start leaking? Hmm. You know, whatever the thing might be that might be mechanical. Just think about it, right? It's, there's no <laughs> way around it. I'm going to think about it. I always question the mechanical things on my bikes, especially yeah. if I have touched it recently. Sure, right? But <laughs> as far as like, you you get through that after the first session. You bring it back in, it's good. And then after that, it's game on. And there's no more, there's no more nerves. First one of the year, there's always like that because it's been a while, you know? Yeah, Yes and no. I, I disagree just because it's not something that happens to me very much. And I'll tell you why. Maybe this is this is a good tip. There's you, you talk to a lot of sports athletes. You talk to a lot of athletes. And a lot of them have superstitions or they have routines. Sure. Or their routines become superstitions. Uh, Rossi is really famous for... Crotch grabbing. For his crotch grab, for sitting touching down, the foot peg. touching the foot peg. Yeah. He touches his toes. He, he, he has a whole... That's a process. Pre, he has a whole pregame thing. That he does, and if you look at um, baseball athletes, for some reason are, are super superstitious. Grab the crotch, spit, throw no, the ball. Like, but won't step on the 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 what's the line? The lines, the foul lines, and certain things like that. Won't won't get on the mound a certain way. You go way. hard in the chalk when you're in. I don't think that's a thing. I think um, <laughs> I think you made that up. <laughs> okay, but but certain athletes have little rituals. Um, I'm sure. thinking about uh, what's the basketball player. Michael Jordan. LeBron James. LeBron James does his little uh, chalk thing. Uh, no, nothing about yeah. that. So, but some of that is maybe a little superstition. Some of that is a little bit of showmanship. But a lot of that too, though, is creating a normalizing effect before you go do the thing. And, and a normalizing and it, effect. It, it's, it's, it makes it so everything is a ritual and it's a process and it's a playbook that your brain recognizes. I put my right shoe on and then I put my left shoe. I put my left glove on and put my right glove on. Then I get on the bike. I hit the key. I hit the switch and I go. Instead of just chaos, chaos, something different, something different, turn the key, go. So your brain goes, it's priming you basically to go do the thing. So you turn this ritual of like, hey, I always put my stuff on a certain way. I always take my warmers off in a certain way and I put them in a certain place in a certain way and I put my stand in my pit box in a certain place in a certain way and you create these rituals that your brain recognizes so when you swing your leg over on the bike and go into the first turn it's not going into it cold it's like oh I'm, I'm going on the racetrack now I'm on I'm on step one of, of going around a racetrack no my brain's on step 12 of going onto a racetrack I've already kind of gotten some of my jitters out I've already kind of gotten my body mentally prepared to go do this thing because i've started doing this ritual and i'm just following this ritual and and you it also makes it really obvious when you're outside of, of your ritual like hey i forgot i feel i didn't put my stand the right way i wonder if i did, I did i unplug my tire warmers did i get my gloves on did i get my chin strap on because i'm on like step 13 when i should be on step 11 it helps kind of signal that to your body it's 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 a high level thing that you'll see a lot of coaches actually teaching their players and things like that that is super nerdy it's, it's, holy that's shit. some sports that's psychology next right there level nerdy i can't imagine that i would that would drive me fucking insane if i had to do that every time but i see it i understand it but i that for me like my mind is 
antithetical to I that. I guarantee right? you do it to a certain extent. I do, now, absolutely. This is, this is for, for sure. some people, and I would say for Rossi, they take it to a whole nother level. I've, I have to do this physical There's an in-between there. Like, so for, for me, when I get to the track, I know I have to do X, Y, and Z, and I want to do it the same way every time. And if I don't do it that way, then it's your, my ass, right? But as far as getting down to... Uh, gloves on left and right or helmet on and then gloves or whatever the thing is that you would do that would very put the helmet down in the same place every time etc cetera, etc cetera. I don't necessarily do that it'd be interesting to like record it and see what I end up actually doing because I might not think that I do but I might do it more but I don't I, I can't remember the last time that I did go out on track without my earplugs in or without the chin strap done up or something like that but I also don't remember the last time I went on track where tire pressures weren't done or uh, there wasn't gas in the bike or et cetera, et cetera. And this is all learned from straight up from working on a race team and having to be the dude that did the thing for the racer. And that taught me more than anything. But when you did the thing for the racer, did you do it in a fairly specific order? Did you, did you check tire pressures before you checked the oil cap, you know, things like that? Well, you know, that's a, that's tough to say. I mean, everything like that would have been safety wired and that's all done stuff done back. You talk about step, 23 i was on step 487 and the start of the steps was three weeks earlier in the shop right so as per the normal race day thing it was unload the truck get the bikes on stands get them on warmers period that's the first thing you do because you you got to get them on then then find the gas get your gas cans ready get that set up right then it's get your notes together what gearing do you have what suspension settings are on it what tires are on it right and then you have to put this all in your absolutely you're you're doing it to an extent absolutely maybe not as neurotic that's what i'm saying i think it's super neurotic and you had to be and it was forced learned ocd if that's i mean that's kind of not ocd it's not a negative term to say ocd process but, but super gnarly where it was like you but i had to get to the point where i had to be obsessive about it I had to because I'm not like that normally, and it's. It lo- I've never for, heard anyone say that about you. <laughs> for me, for me, I had to learn to do that. Right. So when I go to the track, this is great though for somebody who is approaching it. If they're going cold and they are like me, or if they're like you, either way, the smart move is to figure out a way to do that. Right? I would say for for the new rider that's coming into it cold, a checklist. Yeah, for a checklist sure. is is the easy way to do this and that's how you start having a routine it's like okay i got my checklist unload the bike take it out of the truck or the trailer get it up on the stands put it up on warmers if i have them if i don't check my tire pressures check your tire pressures when they've if you have warmers when they're up to heat whatever you might as well start whatever you when you get there whatever yep. your your methodology is and that going to the riders meeting checking my you know um any nut bolt or cap that has got a fluid behind it Checking my brakes, my levers, all those things. Going to the riders meeting, signing up, getting the waiver, get my wristband, whatever it is. Going through tech. Going through tech. Right. You got to know. Getting and my gear on. Enough time to do that and getting there early enough to not be on the back foot and be in a hurry. Right. Because unfortunately, that's something that I'm definitely good at, which is getting to a race weekend oh. the morning of super late. Just, oh, yeah, you're, you're talking to the king of this, Quinn. Right. So I'm used to it. I'm, not, um, I'm notorious for showing up after tech. I'm pretty good at it, but that doesn't mean it's a smart thing. So the last, the, like when when I raced this last time at, at Omra, I got there like super early. Number one, I lived 12 minutes from the track, which is awesome. And it allowed me to get there, get set up. And it was like the whole day went like a breeze because I had overdone it. I was just like, you know what? 
I'm tired of racing being stressful. It's one of the reasons why I don't do it very often because because I do get stressed out by it and I don't want to be out there not having fun. So I wanted to get there early and be able to help out or whatever. And that's that. But one thing I did notice myself doing was when I was helping out Christian on his R6 uh, cripple triple was I was like, I had gone back into racing mentality. And this is something that everybody that's listening should do if they're going to track days. You come in after your first session, after every session, but let's the first one is the most important. You get it up on the warmers. You know you've got, let's say, 40 minutes left until the next because that's normally the rotations is 20 minutes each. So that's, I mean, that's not for every class, but most of the track days that I've done, that's definitely it. So you know you got a while. You get it up on warmers, um, and the first thing you do is start putting your hands on every single component that's not blistering hot. I put my hand on the grip and on the front brake lever and I try and twist it. I try and twist the grip and I try and twist the whole bar and I try and twist the lever itself to see if it's solid. I go to the other side to do the clutch side. I go to the rear sets. I put my hand on the foot peg and often foot pegs are are spun on. If it's a stock thing, of of course, you're not going to have to worry about it as much, but you still should put your hand on it and make sure that it doesn't twist off or is not loose. Then you check your brake lever and your shift lever. And the shift lever is pretty much the main one that you always have to keep an eye on because they always come loose. There's multiple points on that that have connections that are tightened up. So always do this. Have a look at, put your hand on your rear axle nut. You're like, why would I do that? It's a huge nut. I'm not going to have an effect. You'd be surprised, right? Shit comes loose. I don't care if it has the little Fuji connectors that make it tighten up or some sort of nylock. Put your hand on it. Put your hand on the on the chain adjusters. Whatever the thing is, just put touch it. It's surprising how much I've been able to glean from that and how many things that I have fixed. And just recently, the Christian spike, I happened to see something that was loose and it was, again, not something that you would see loose. It's not a visual. You have to put your hand on it and say, ooh, that exhaust mount bracket is loose. Time to put a, a wrench on it, et cetera. That's just part of the deal. Also, uh, if you're on a full-on sports bike or if you have, especially if you have race fairings, have a look in your belly pan, always. Like, especially at the beginning of the track that you're looking for moisture of any sort, oil, obviously coolant, or loose nuts and bolts. Where did that come from? Right. And this that is a catch pan and it's a beautiful thing and it's a very useful thing. If it's just filled with a bunch of road grime and and dirt, great. Clean it out, whatever that is. But it can also be a very good indication of a leak or something like that. So those are two things that I recommend very highly that you do uh, when you come off track as put your hands on it on the bodywork. Shake the bodywork. Is it loose? Is it not? Right. So that's a that's definite high recommendation for uh, the beginnings, frankly, it's a recommendation for everybody. And I don't think people do it often enough. And then once you're done with the track day, wash the bike. Oh no, I don't want to have to worry about it. No, it's not that dirty. Yeah, it is. It's dirtier than you think it is. Wash the bike. And as you're washing it, you will be able to find things that you would never think you would find. Yeah. All the little components. Again, you're putting your hands on it. Yeah, and you really are. So, you know, get a nice brush out, you know, put, do, get a grunge brush and do your chain, have a look at all the things. And, you know, when you have it up in the air, you have the stands. And this is not something that normal people have access to is a bike that's lifted up in the air. Grab your swing arm and your rear of your tire and try and, and pivot your, your rear wheel to check for wheel bearings. Do the same on the front, right, et cetera, et cetera. Those types of things are things that you can catch. You're like, oh, my gosh, this is clunking. This isn't normal. Why Why is this rear wheel, you know, have play in it? Is that the swing arm? You know, whatever that might be. And that kind of can prevent, it's preventative checking that can happen during a race weekend. I guess I've just seen so much travesty over the years with bikes 
and things that you wouldn't expect, right? When I got home from my 2,100-mile trip, my rear wheel on my Multistrada, again, had come loose. Safety-wired clip, clip in place, and it wasn't that loose, but the nut, that 32 or 36-millimeter nut on the on the wheel side was totally hand-tight. I had torqued it 130 newton meters. I'd done it beforehand, and I had to make sure of it, but it had come loose because it had come loose before, and now the two interfaces, the flats of the wheel and the and the pins of the of the drive are compromised. And I'm basically at the stage where I think I'm going to have to put on a, a new wheel. I'm going to have to get a new wheel because those faces aren't perfect and mm. to machine them is fucked up. But I have to check those things. And I should have been checking it while I was riding. I had the tool with me, but I wasn't thinking about it. I was too busy falling ass and having fun, right? So I wasn't thinking. It's like, well, I've got to make these points. I do this thing. And that could have been really gnarly. And I had that happen before where that, that wheel had come loose and poof, Scary, super scary, because it's a single-sided swing arm. So anyway, things like that are, are stuff you should wor- look at, even as a street bike rider. It just helps that when you're at the track, it, you are putting yourself in, a, in super harm's way by being on a, a fast track, and you're with other people as well. Uh, so the chances of a mistake that you make affecting others is pretty high. Yeah, yeah. I want to get to, we, we talk about kind of the pregame, what you do in the pits, what you do at home. Yeah. Let's talk about when you're on the track itself. Sure. Because that's that's the bulk of it, right? And it depends on the track day organization, which the first thing I'll say, some track day organizations are better than others and how they present the track day as a beginner thing. Sometimes it's basically, all right, you're slow, you're medium, you're fast, go have fun. And they have control riders, but not there necessarily to help you. Some track days are really gnarly about it where like you're you're in the beginner group. We're all going out. We're going to do a group ride first. We're not even going to go that fast. And that's what like Moto Corsa does. It eases people in very well. So that is a difference in, in track days. And you got to figure out what's going to happen the first track day that you go to. And I would say absolutely you're better off going to a school or something that has some sort of instruction before just going to a track day cold. And think- yeah, I think that helps bring some of the anxiety down. For yeah. me, I really think anxiety is the mind killer for for new um, for new track riders because it's that that unknown. And once you kind of get realizing, you know, going that speed, going into the turns, doing the whole process, once you got a couple of those under your belt, the anxiety comes down a little bit because you it's in more of a known quantity. And but anxiety can do a lot of crazy things to your mind, and especially when you're at speed. You can make some bad choices. So I think I think you're right. Like going to a class where they're going to not only ease you into it, but also give you instruction. And give you something to work on. They're going to ramp you up on your skill set a lot quicker than you if you were just out there circulating by yourself. Or even if you were just circling with just a control rider who's going to give you a few pointers at the end of the of the session. Um, yeah. Yeah. It kind of helps you earn your stripes a little bit quicker and safer and makes you more more of a comfortable rider. So then you can stop in your mind, stop worrying about these kind of extraneous things, you know, are my, are my tires right? Is my, is my setup right? Is my bike okay? You know, is do, is it really going to be okay when I go through turn one and all these things to going back to like, okay, yeah. Okay. I'm missing my brake marker. Okay. I'm hitting the apex. Oh yeah. Maybe, maybe go up a gear this next time around through this turn, you know, more higher level. Yeah. Stuff that you really wouldn't think of as a beginner. No. The beginner. And that's what the interesting part of being a, instructor or rider coach for so long when I was doing it was how it's like figuring out the ABCs and you'd have some coaches 
some idiots that were like trying to get the people to have their body position like Mark Marquez. They're focusing on that as the beginner thing. It's like, you freaking numpty. Get them just figuring out lines. Show them how yeah. to go around the track in a, on, on a pole line. Show them that. But explain to them that, you know what, this will come with speed, but this right. is the way you should start or at least have your mind to think about outside, inside, outside, et cetera. Whereas a lot of people that would show up, they wouldn't even have a clue. They'd just be going around at the radius of the corner, um, like through a third way through the track and not be thinking about that at all, going hellishly slow. And right then, then it's like, how do you impart that to them? All, the, all they'd heard was, well, you got to hang off and you'd see them hanging off like Rossi but going like like with no lean angle whatsoever. And right, they're they're focusing on the wrong thing. They have to be focused on the right thing. So getting the type of people that can teach well is a tough one, right? Yeah. It was interesting right before you came over for, for this recording. Um I was down at the park taking a break and I'll just go for a little walk. And there was a dad teaching uh, his son to play baseball. And you know, I could hear him yelling at his kid. Not like yelling. Was yelling, he like, go hard in the chalk? Go, go harder in the paint. Jensen says harder in the paint. Wait, wrong sport. Damn. Um, but you know, he, you could hear him like from across the park, kind of like bend your knees. You know, this is how this is how you swing. Not not, not this way. Like the kid was like literally swinging the wrong way. <laughs> and you're like, I don't. I don't know. know. Maybe they're left-handed. I'm, I mean, the physics of that doesn't work. But yeah. Oh, okay. swinging like against, against like, like with the ball. <laughs> okay. Like, sure. Literally, like they would swing with the ball and then swing the other way, like they were they were double slashing it. Oh, nice. And it was it was kind of interesting to like to be there and like he, they're doing like batting practice basically. And I, it was the it was the giving him like oh you're swinging the wrong way and I was like well if your kid doesn't know how to swing a bat like why are you bothering throwing a ball at him like you're <laughs> you've made the the thing too complex I'm like I'm like if if you're having swing issues like fundamental swing issues yeah, sure. not like okay you know you want to do this you know try to cut the ball down left field rather than right field or pop it up or ground ball just basic like this is how you swing a bat basics I'm like stop pitching it to him bring out a tee yeah tee ball it let's let's if like yeah, if you've sure. got to go back to to baseball 101, then go back to baseball well, 101. Well, that would be the. And that's of, the same thing where I think with 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 motorcycling, where you got to start somewhere, and and if you're not able to go through the turn fast enough where your body position is an issue, then why? Yeah, why are you trying to teach someone how to ride like Mark Marquez when they need to learn like don't pull the clutch in when you go through the turn? <laughs> yeah, which is which is a uh, thing that's sometimes. legit. That's absolutely yeah. legit. And that, but that's also another argument somebody would say. Well. Don't you feel going to the track right off the bat is a bit extreme? It's like, no, I still don't think so. I still think if you can get somebody to level up to the point where they get to a track day and a good one that has a very, very slow for a basic group, they're better off still than trying to go practice going oh, yeah. on the street by long shot. So the that is still, yes, you are leveling up to swinging a bat at a ball that's coming at you a little bit more than T-ball, but where else are you going to do it? There's no other good, safe no, yeah. way to do it, right? I mean, I, if if it was someone, in fact, we have a, a person in our peer group right now who just got a motorcycle and they're a new rider, and I was saying, you know, maybe don't go to a motocorsa track track, day, big track, especially since they, they have a smaller bike, but go to the go-kart track track day. Yeah. Go spend your 50 bucks, because it's, it's nothing, to go to the go-kart track. And go, you know, you can. Did ride. you offer to help them though? Did you say, "Hey, I yeah. can go with you"? Yeah, because yeah, that yeah. would that would be the ultimate. Is not just go to some track day, but go there with yeah, somebody yeah, yeah. that's going to help them. Right? No, absolutely. And but it'd be like one that's like it's less intimidating. It's a lot less way speed. Better. Way better. But it's still a track, and you can you have the kind of like the safety of the controlled environment. 
and it's only like you know, our go kart track is 20 turns or less. So you you'll learn 20 turns pretty quick, and the repetition will help. You know, go through it and go over, and that'll teach you a lot of basic motorcycle things. That's not going to teach you how to be a defensive rider. It's not going to teach you how to read traffic and all these other kind of skills that you're going to need to know as a, as a street rider, but it will teach you to be really comfortable with the motorcycle as a machine and how to put that machine and make it put that machine on the road where you want it to be and how to operate it in a way that is second nature rather than you having to think about, okay, I'm slowing down. I got to pull in the clutch, shift down the lever, let the clutch out easy, give it a little gas. That whole thing becomes second nature. Shifting becomes second nature. Proper braking technique becomes second nature. Turning becomes second nature. That, that goes to the uh, Keith Code spending a dollar. Like how much of your dollar are you spending on that stuff relative to right. working on lines or right. whatnot? And if you get it to the point where you're spending cents on the the basics, then then you can work on the the more extreme stuff for sure. And one thing I'll say that I I would recommend above all is is that most people are if they're in the street realm which most of our listeners i would say are um getting on the dirt as soon as you can or getting on small bikes because if you harken back to the not too long ago i was talking about me starting racing on a ysr 50s on 50 cc road racers on go-kart tracks was probably the single biggest level up thing that i could have done and it was the biggest thing for my riding and my safety that I could have ever done. And I'm super fortunate for it. Right. I would, I would amend that to say, start out on a smaller bike, not necessarily direct because the idea of if you get on a dirt road and on a dirt, dirt trail, the things you learn there aren't necessarily going to help you as a street rider. They are, but it might be swinging the bat at a pitch rather than a T-ball, but definitely like a smaller bike that you're going to feel comfortable on that you can physically move around but sure. like, it's so much easier to ride like, a 150 cc dirt bike that's three quarters of the size of oh, a normal yeah, sure. bike and just manhandle around and if you get in trouble and you kind of panic stop or you do something stupid you're not necessarily going to like fall over and be stuck on the motorcycle you'll be like you'll be able to like just hold it and pull it up and you're like oh, i did something wrong and it's sure. a lot more approachable and a lot more forgiving when you make mistakes. Well, and that's why I'm bringing up dirt in general. But of course, I, I my brain thinks that anybody would normally start on something super small, like if you're going to go to the dirt. But if you have the privilege or access in some way, getting to the point where you can be comfortable with, with its feeling when it goes out of control, when the rear slides or when the front scrubs, when you can do that on the dirt in a controlled environment, then it, it becomes less extreme when you do it on pavement. Sure. And the the one way I taught uh, my ex how to ride, well, the first thing I did was we lived on a fairly big hill, engine off. I basically sent them down the hill and had them brake first, front brake, then rear brake, then a combination of both. And we just did that drill over and over and over with the clutch in. Like, as soon as you do this, pull the clutch in, right? And go all the way to a stop. That was a... I was surprised at how well that worked because then as soon as we got to the dirt parking lot, and this is on a TTR 125, it was a hell of a lot easier to start with, okay, this is how you release the clutch. And this is, then then you knew what to do once to pull it in to stop. Everything's all about the stopping. That's where most of the danger comes is when people panic and they can't stop in a timely manner or as the bike should be. So working on brakes before anything else is critical 
And I thought, I don't think a lot of people do that. I just get on a bike. You, how many YouTube videos have you seen of people just jamming the throttle on and running into a fence because they weren't given the, this training on how to brake first, how to stop the bike. Right. Yeah. And so that's something that can also be learned very easily on dirt. Uh, but I see what you're saying as far as like, if somebody has got a Ninja 250 and that's their first bike, are they, they going to go off-road with it? No. Are they going to go get on a, uh, a CRF 250 and then have the same? No, that's a gnarly, big, gnarly, tall, difficult to deal with thing. But if you get on a TTR 125 or even a TTR 230, something that's easy to ride and, and comfortable, then you can, I you think, can... I think the point I was just trying to make was if you're a street rider who's got a Ninja 250 and you're, you're a new rider, this idea that you should go out on a dirt trail on a 110 or a 150 immediately isn't maybe the best idea because it's more of like a crossover. It's like, look, become a competent street rider before you try and cross-train and, sure. and pull other skill sets out because I just worry that the, there's going to be too much of, on the street, it's all about the front brake, on the trail, it's yeah, all sure. about the rear brake, and turning is a different thing, and your body position is a different thing. It's just a lot of differences that would be motorcycling... 202. 202 or whatever yeah. it is, instead of 101. We're like, somebody, yeah, you should add that into your mix, and, be, and it's good to get it earlier than later. But for just basic, like, getting muscle memory and becoming becoming a motorcycle rider-ness, I think focusing on one or the other and getting that down first is is a requirement. And as far as miles goes, it's quality, not quantity. And I'd rather know that somebody had spent the bulk of their formative time stoplight to stoplight or stop sign to stop sign in a remote area of a city, just getting used to braking and shifting and braking and shifting over and over and over and using the front brake and using the rear brake and putting a lot of miles on in that way than just getting on a highway and blasting for, you know, 100 miles or, the, or get, putting gas tanks on, especially at the beginning. And I see a lot of people do that. The first thing they want to do is just go as they should because it's motorcycles and it's awesome. And that's what you're doing it for to get out. But if you can spend as much time as you can um, dealing with basic level of doing all the shifting and braking and being around all the different road surfaces and getting used to making turns, uh, even if they're just 90s through the city, uh, I think that helps quite a bit. I think about my formative years and how that was a, a, a big part of it, and it helped me out greatly. Um, and then getting on, uh, frankly, again, I was super privileged and blessed to be able to get on dirt roads right off the bat where I lived. I would get on dirt roads from where I lived on a street bike with knobby-ish, street-ish tires. So I had the best of it all. I seriously did. And then once I got on a on a 250 Interceptor, which is the equivalent of a Ninja 250, I didn't get on the dirt roads that often, but when I had to, eh, didn't bother me, you know? And I was super lucky, right? And a lot of people don't have that. As soon as they see dirt, it's like, oof. Even even well-graded, well-set-up dirt, it's it's a scary thing. Oh, yeah. Right? I, I, I can come right back to the ride that I went on this weekend. We hit a a section of road that was under construction and it turned into gravel road basically. Yep. And it was really funny to watch the the gentleman in front of me go full ADV mode, you know, out of the saddle, up on the thing, on the peg, standing up, looking over and you're just like, it's only a hundred feet of gravel, yeah. but it's, and it's smooth. It's not like it's, yeah. I mean, it's a road. It's, it's better than a fire road. Yeah, sure. And I'm sitting there on my street fighter, just sitting there going like, what are you doing? Well, it's but, good. but because they weren't maybe as comfortable with that or, sure. or that's just their mental process of dirt road, I got to get up off uh, the pegs. Saddle, get on the yeah, pegs. All right, sure. Um, we we kind of went down a street bike tangent. I want to finish up the the track stuff. What would you say are are recommendations or schools of thought or best practices for a C group rider to level up and be quicker 
and to be a competent track rider? Um, the key for me is learning those lines and getting used to the smoothness of off throttle, on brakes, on throttle, right? That, that crux of getting to the center of the corner, to the apex and getting out seems to be the largest single thing. And really it's brakes. A lot of people think it's throttle and that comes, but really it's getting comfortable using the brakes more than you normally would. I see that as the biggest thing that gets people quick, that gets, get them up, levels them up. Um, it's not lean angle. It that comes with this, right? That I see lean angle and getting the knee down should not even be part of the thing that you're looking for. If you're, if you, if you're riding the lines and you're using the brakes as you should, and you're uh, then getting on the throttle as you should, the lean angles will come but so many people focus on it and myself included. I just wanted to get my knee down so bad, Absolutely, sure. but eventually I had to ignore that because it was causing me to go slower and fuck up more because I was concentrating on getting my knee down. By the time I did it, when I was racing YSR fifties, it was just a, and I was just like, Oh, well that happened and that was easy, but it became fluid. But a lot of people do that. They overthink it and over focus on that aspect of it. And compromise their line and their body position to achieve it. Yeah. Yeah. In a big way. That's absolutely a big thing. I can think of, <laughs> we were actually on our press launch one for the uh, Street Fighter 848. And we had to end up waiting for 20 minutes because one of the journalists really needed to have a knee down photo on a street ride, which is stupid. But they weren't really a competent enough rider to be able to get a knee down. So they ended up doing, oh God, I don't know, like 30 passes or something. I got it. I got it. And then sure enough, it's like the front page one. And we were going so fast. And you sit there and just like, and they're leaning so far. Like their ass isn't even on the seat anymore. Like both cheeks are off and they're trying so hard. And you're just like, for what? For what? So you can say you did it. So you can have the photo. And I guarantee you from experience, you know, I didn't drag a single knee that entire road trip and I was going twice as fast as they were. Sometimes I go through race weekends and I barely even yeah. scrape a puck. Yeah, sure. But that's a good example of what I've seen with, with beginner riders in the focus, right? And don't worry about what the other people are doing. Focus on your own, on your own line, on your own ride, on your own machine. And don't spend too much time spending, you know, just don't, don't listen to too many other people unless there's an instructor that knows what they're doing. Well, that's always the thing I've noticed is um, usually the the less experienced riders are usually the most vocal ones at the track. <laughs> it's so it's funny is, how that works. There is a little of like the guy that's been really loud who's offering a lot of free advice is probably not the person. What's you the listen What's to. the curve? There's a there's a curve or there's a, a a name for that where the there's a there's an area where the competence competency is not at the level of your expertise your ambition outweighs your talent yeah but there's a there's a very specific term for it and I, i'm sorry i can't remember what i don't know i don't know what you're referring to um i'm trying to think consistency is probably the biggest thing i would look for as a control rider and a rider that was hitting the break points at the same time every time getting on the throttle hitting the apex being the predictable same. yeah holding their line speed isn't so much of the thing um it's it's being predictable when when you come by them like going back to this this gentleman from our last ride who's all over the road you know like that level of unpredictability is is really not what i'd be looking for you want someone that isn't necessarily fast but is going to do things in a very predictable sort of way um because usually that means they have a lot of competency over their vehicle and then it's just a matter of well going a little bit faster you'll get that knee down or you'll you'll go through that turn a little quicker and then hitting the brake markers. 
Um, I would I always recommend to people to to buy photographs from yeah. from the photographer. There's a photographer there. That's like the I mean the rates kind of vary, but let's say it's fifty bucks. That's probably the fifty bucks best spent. Maybe you don't do it every time, but you should definitely do it every year or so just to check in and see like, hey, you know, what's my my body position looking like? How far away from the apex am I? Um, you know what what's going on because. I know for me as a new writer, there'd be times where I was like, oh, my body position is perfect. I'm doing the thing. I'm like Valentina Rossi. And then I see a photo and I'm like just sitting up like I'm having dinner on my bike. You know, what you sure. what you perceive and what is reality is very, very different. You feel like you're leaning a ton. You feel like you're hanging off. You feel like you've got your body and your head and your torso where it needs to be. And the, the photo can tell you a very different story. And you don't get that feedback as readily and someone can say like hey lean off more hey move your butt more hey do this and you can try and make that adjustment but when you look at it especially having like a reference like motorcycle racing on tv we see so often these camera angles of where those riders are positioning their bodies and you can look at your own photo and be like oh yeah i'm really not doing that at all am i i'm really i'm somewhere else i think i'm doing it to 11 and i'm at like four and i'll my every picture i see of me going even when i was peak racing AMA stuff. I just look like I'm on for a Sunday ride. I've, I try and lean off more and I'm just never comfortable with it. Right. You have a very 1980s racing style though, yeah. or 1990s. I should say like you, you remind me of like, like you look at photos of Colin Edwards and stuff. He's got that kind of prairie dog straight up and down. Yeah. Doesn't really get his butt off the bike kind of style where it's just carrying a lot of lean. Um, yeah, yeah, sure. So that's the thing is that sometimes it depends on your style. And that you don't necessarily want to emulate anyway. What's whatever's comfortable for you and your physiology is, sure. is critical. But you're right. And understand that different body types and different and different bikes are going to necessitate a different style. Yeah, absolutely. So it's going to be a huge difference. But at the same time, if you see a picture of me on my 848 Street Fighter or my 848 race bike, I look about the same. <laughs> it's so funny. Uh, what I was talking about earlier is the Dunning Kruger effect. You've, mm. Have you ever heard that? Mm-mm. I don't know. It's just like a it's a curve of competence versus uh, confidence, right? And oh, then there's usually a break point where people that are super confident, and this is big time in this motorcycle industry, end up being incompetent, but they're so confident, right? So you got to be careful. And I always say anybody that is emphatic and and black and white about any specific thing, uh, and well, anything in life, it's probably the the least trustworthy to me. I'd like to hear like what we're talking about now. If I say what I feel is the most important thing for somebody to think about, doesn't mean that's like the absolute. It's go just, out and focus on it. Yeah, yeah, that's just what I think, and no, that doesn't sure. mean that you should focus on my um, skill set or my words. Right? Use that as as a part of the whole toolbox, and you say, well. I heard on this podcast that Quentin that has done this, this, and this does it this way. doesn't sure. mean it's the perfect thing, right? And truth be told, like you go out to a track day with, with a good set of control riders, and let's say you talk to two or three of them after your sessions, they'll probably each critique you on different things yeah. because that's either what they saw or what they were focusing on or that's what they're sensitive to. Yep. Like I'm like, I am a body position guy. I'll go out and be like, hey, you should move your butt over here. Hey, you should do this. Or hey, this is where the line is. Those are kind of like my wheelhouse items where I talk to other guys like, Oh, I'm really about brake markers and this is where you should get on the brakes and this is where you should turn in. And you know, this is where the apex is or, or whatever that is. And the real good instructors have all those in the toolbox and know yeah. which one to hit with that specific person. And they query the person first and they get to know the person and then get a better understanding, whether it be from their 
existing skill set or experiences in life because you're going to talk to a, a race car driver that's just getting into motorcycles or a helicopter pilot or something like that in a little bit different terms than you are a, a base skippy that just bought their bike and is going out there because they have quite a lot of experience. You know, at the same time, I've also had people that are like, well, I've been riding mountain bikes for years, so I should be good to go. And then you just shake your head. You're like, I get it. And that you do have a specific skill set that does apply to motorcycles, but you're not going to tell me that your downhill mo- bicycle experience really has a whole lot to do with going super fast on a road race course. Just you have to be careful with that mentality. You can say, well, I get it that you're comfortable and you have balance, et cetera, et cetera, but this is a different world, right? So I've had to have that conversation a couple of times as well. If you ran out of gas on the track, I'm confident that you'll be able to push it back to the pits. <laughs> you look like you got the calves for it. You know? Right, exactly. <laughs> um, anything else, Quentin? Anything else you got? No, I think uh, I think we did a pretty proper, good job. Proper paddock stand usage? Yeah. Well, you know, if you got tire warmers, you can't can't really have the kickstand, can you? Well, you can. You're just not going to use it a whole lot. No. Or you burn up that hole in the... We, I know we were winding down and about to make some jokes, um, but but you just tipped me off on something because this is something that's been in my, in my riding group a lot lately. What tires and w- to use on early day track days, whether or not to have warmers, things like that, because I've had a couple newer riders out there on slicks and who quite frankly look at their speed and like i'm pretty sure you're not even putting you're not getting enough heat, heat into those tires and make those them tires. yeah sure and then some people will have like slicks or like a dot race tire and not put warmers on them and wonder why they're crashing in like the early laps um so what, what's what's your philosophy on what kind of let's let's break it down if you're a new rider Going to your first or second track day, early track day years. Do you even bother with warmers? Do no, you get warmers? I don't. I don't. I don't. I tell people, you're going to have to ease in anyway. So ease in. Use the pressures that you would maybe a little bit lower than what you'd use on the street. But it depends on the bike. But generally, I'm like 32, 34, 30, 32. Uh, on be, a, I'd be careful giving out any tire pressures without knowing the tire. No doubt. But I'm just saying if that, if, if you're used to running 32, 34, maybe you go down a couple PSI, et cetera, but not, it's not critical. It's not as critical as a lot of people think it is, especially if you're a beginner. Now, once you get leveled up, absolutely. It's super hypercritical. But for those who are spending their dollar on the setup of their bikes and all that stuff, just make sure to check your pressures and get it close, then ease in. The key is easing in and getting them warm. And knowing how to do that, you're always going to have to know how to do that, especially going on the street, knowing how to ease in and not go too hard, too what fast. What a cold tire is, what it feels like, what Absolutely. It's do. And knowing how to get that feeling. And then also, you know what? Not every time do your tire warmers function. Shit happens. You forget to plug them in, whatever the thing is. So if you know how that bike feels, because you know how a cold tire feels, you're way better off than somebody going out there and making a big assumption that their tires are hot, hot, and then going into turn one and jamming it on and crashing, right? So I think street tires are fine in the beginning, but as far as just even track day, basic general duty track day, B group, A group, whatever, I'm so used to running full-on race tires that that's what I have, and I do run tire warmers when I have those, because that's how they f- operate. And I know that. Uh, but when we did say the um, deathmatch stuff, we had 
We had all. Do we have consistency? Everybody, everybody. And then we was always had tire warmers, and that was fine, and that worked out pretty well in that situation because we needed the consistency. I think about the last couple of times I went out on multistratas. Consistency too, but it's also there's also a function of time in there where we were we had X amount of laps. Yeah, we per need to go quick, quick to go to go evaluate it. Yep. And sometimes, truthfully, that's the early laps where you can get through with a clear track with yep. no traffic. Sure. Absolutely. Um, that's a different situation. That's a whole different situation. That's a, that's a corner yeah. case in this. So for like the last time I went out on that's my multi like motorcycle three oh three right there. Sure. So last time I went on my multistrada mm-hmm. eleven hundred on the track, I didn't use tire warmers and I just eased in on. I think I was on like Michelin Pilot Four Road Fours or something like that. And it just was the same as being on the street. I just eased in and then it felt great. Right. Yeah. I would I would agree and disagree on a couple things. I think I. I'm indifferent on whether or not someone should run warmers. If you got the money, you want to do it. Sure, why not? It's um, I don't think there's a huge detriment. I definitely agree with you. Like knowing how to ride on a cold tire is something that you need to have in your wheelhouse, um, and and have respect for that because it's. You know, I see a lot of riders that don't have respect for that quite often. But if you're going out on the racetrack and saying, "Hey, I want to, I want to control and have consistency. I don't want to have to worry about." going easy those first two laps are as easy i want the security blanket of knowing my tire is already close to operating temperature i'm okay with it i suppose all right well here's here's the crux okay and i had this happen to me once uh street fighter thunder hill uh 42 degrees ambient morning i go out with off warmers on a street fighter with like super courses whatever And the first cars are told cold well the the first. first the first lap was fucking amazing it was like how this is a I can't believe this is gripping so well. Like I could feel it immediately, yeah. you know. And second lap, I crash on the front end because I just not it's it just All the heat probably it got just sucked got out. sucked right yeah. out. So having having the feel for traction, yeah. Uh, at one point, I'm used to consistently, but I'm, on a street bike like that, I wa- I just wasn't riding hard enough to keep the heat in the tires. Now, if I was on my race bike, maybe I would have been a, in a better situation, but. That was a time where I realized, hmm, depending on ambient and depending on the track and the conditions, maybe if I was going to do that over again, I would have started that day off on cold tires and just just assume that the first session of the day was going to be shitty and that it was going to be cold and I was just going to have to ease in. Instead, I was like, I hadn't ridden Thunder Hill in years and I was on my favorite bike and I really wanted to haul ass, so I go out there and I went and gusto. Luckily, all I had to do was do a walk of shame, find a brake lever from somebody and had a great rest of the day. And then as soon as I got home, I put bar guards on my bike. I'm like, <laughs> like so I, I found out some things about myself and my bike that day by doing that. But that was one of the, I haven't crashed at a lot of track days, but I have done. And it's always embarrassing and shitty to do so. Um, and you just have to learn each time, like, what the situation was. And if you do it enough, it varies, right? Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you. I don't, I don't necessarily disagree. Like, I, I definitely think that's something that a rider needs to know how to manage is, is the heat and the tire. And especially in cold is like, I, I cut my teeth doing track days back East. So there was definitely track day mornings where it didn't matter if you had warmers or not, because halfway through the first lap, your bike, your tires were cold again. Yeah. And you'd hear guys, you know, complain like, Oh, I'm having no grip. And my bike was on warmers. Like, well, yeah, it's, yeah, it's 40, 50 degrees out. It's still first session. The sun's not even on the track yet. Yeah. Like it's green. It's super green. So just take it easy and ease your way in and, you know, make sure everything's okay. We mechanically on your bike, just use it as kind of like a, 
a trial run. Yeah, and we can keep going, and you know it. We could probably do this for ad infinitum, but the last thing I'll say is like at the track days, as a beginner rider, there's always a tendency. I just paid two hundred bucks, two hundred fifty dollars for this. I want to get every single second of track time. Right, I'm desperate for it. I need it. I gotta have it. Don't don't fall down that pit hole. Right, it's it can be a big problem, especially in the morning ease in don't assume that you should go fast right off the bat just ease in at the by about two o'clock in the afternoon i know it doesn't sound but most track days only go to four or five so by two o'clock have a good feeling for how tired you are how much water you've drank your general feel for how the day is gone etc and be weary of going out for that last couple of sessions um especially when you're in the beginner situation Uh, you might be tireder than you think so I would I would often skip the first session of the day, knowing that I'm going to be tired by the end of the day. But why would I want to go? Why would I want to waste all my time and energy when the track is green and it's cold? And even if I had tire warmers, my tires still aren't going to heat up for those kind of shitty sessions when I know that towards the end of the day, things are going to thin out. People are going to get tired. They're going to go home. They're going to maybe crash and not go out. And some of the best sessions of the day are the, are the last ones. If you meter yourself yeah. out well. So save sure. your energy, save your strength, especially if you're not in really good physical shape. Like, yeah, why would you want to go out? Like, maybe go out do a couple laps just to sort things out yeah, and absolutely. get your head right. Sure, sure, sure. But don't do a whole session. Don't waste your time on the on the, the sessions where it's too cold to have any real fun. Save it for, you know, that last session of the day when you're, you're feeling good and the sun's out and the track's still warm and no one else is out there with you. I mean, man, I can't think of how many track days especially, you know, in the middle of, of the summer in California, there was nobody out there in the last session. It was like me and a couple other guys because everyone had just dehydrated or, or crashed or just yeah. were just done sure. with it. I got to get home. I got to beat traffic. Yeah. And you're like, man, no, those are the best sessions. They can be. So you got to be careful with that. Yeah. Also, generally, um, the the quality versus quantity of getting out there and having all the laps is like, you don't have to feel perfect right off the bat. And if you come back from a first session and it's cold and crappy, or if everything's perfect and it just doesn't feel that right, just sit down and grab a water and have a think on what you just experienced. Have a look at the trap map. Talk to anybody about the track or what you just experienced. Chat with somebody about it. But don't assume that just because you had a bad first session that the rest of the day is going to be like that. And I see a lot of people go down another, it's like a mental pitfall. Oh, of, sure, yeah. Oh, man, that sucked. My bike sucks. It feels horrible. My brakes suck and my suspension sucks and blah, 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 blah. When really, it was just blowing out the cobwebs and getting your physiology right for it and having the muscle memory come back. And then by the second session, I've seen this so many times and I've experienced it so many times. You're like, boom, that was great. I had a great time. Wow, what a weird thing. But I've seen people go have that pendulum swing into the dark and stay in the dark and just have a shitty day. Yeah, once you get negative, it's hard to come back. Right? So they have that. Uh, just just to finish up the tire the tire thought, um, it was funny because when we did or when I did the Pirelli Diablo Corso Rosso 2, man, they really got to figure out a better way of saying that, launch in South Africa. It was interesting talking to them about it. Because, you know, we're out there on, I was out there on a Panigale V4 Dragon Knee. And you come back in, they're like, yeah, these are actually at street pressures. All the bikes are at street pressures. Because we wanted to show this as a street tire first. 
And we wanted to show that this tire can perform at a certain level, even at street pressures, instead of having to air it down and do all the things. And I bring that up because I'm, I'm a big proponent that early track day riders should start out on a street tire that's got some track leanings, whether yeah. that's a Pirelli or a Michelin Whatever or, the brand. Or Dunlop yeah. or whatever. You but know, that if, is if made it's Dunlop, for it's like that. a Q3. If yeah. it's a Pirelli, it's a Diablo Rosso Corso 2. If it's a Michelin, maybe it's a Power RS. Um, my neighbor's being super loud. Good job of being a parent. Um, I'm forgetting a tire brand and what tire they have. Uh, Bridgestone. 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 Um, an S21. Um this is because, I, because this would be like for the next level. This is like two hundred two level, right? This is like kind of two hundred two. Well, and I still think it's I still think it's one hundred one because you're going to have to put tires on the bike no matter what you're going yeah, out on. Yeah, that's true. And it's going to vary. Different bikes are going to have different tires they're going to work for. But, but I'm these just thinking, things are made to I'm operate thinking, at, at cold and at normal pressures. Right, that's right? the thing. These are tires that are meant to be on the street. That means they've got silica in them. That's they're going to heat up quicker. They're going to be okay in mixed conditions. They're going to be okay in the heat. They're going to be okay in the cold. They they were built to tackle all sorts of conditions. And they're going to be way more forgiving if you don't have your pressures right. Yeah. Like, 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 and that's why I bring up this track day. So we're doing a press launch at a world circuit on the other side of the globe with some of the newest, hottest bikes. And we're running street pressures on this tire because that's what these tires are designed to do. And that, that's going to be so much more forgiving. And I see some newer riders that come out with, um, like the Dunlop GPA is just a notoriously, dangerous tire for newer riders because it's a phenomenal tire for racers and track day enthusiasts but it doesn't operate cold at all it's like an eight ball when it's cold sure and that was and, like a lot of older pirellis yeah. were like that it was and really bad sure. you go out cold on them if you didn't have warmers on them or if you didn't give them at least a lap or two to warm up and and slowly kind of put heat into them they would always catch out and i remember the last uh track day that i can i was control riding at we had a gentleman crash and sure enough, he's on GPAs, and I ask him, and this is like the second lap or the first lap of the session. And I'm like, well, I mean, did you have warmers? No. Well, were you easing in? No. They just, they just, I went through the turn and it just gave away. I'm like, well, yeah, it's because their tires are cold. That's what a cold tire is going to do to you. It's not going to give you any feedback because it's not operating yet. And I think for new riders, there's this idea of like, well, I have to go get the slick or I have to go get the DOT race tire, or I have to go get that super whammy new tire that just came out that's high performance and all the magazines said is great. And it's like, well, you don't. And in fact, a lot of those times, those can be detriments because you have to treat them in a very specific way. Yeah, sure. You have to know what you're you have to doing be more with them. And you have to get up to speed really fast. And you have to get up to speed. And there's some people, like, if you're just not putting in the pace, you can do all the things right. You can have the right pressure. You can run warmers. The track can be hot. You can be doing all the things, but if you're not going fast enough to put the heat into a slick or a DOT race tire, it's a time bomb. You're going to be end up you're going to end up eventually on your side in the gravel trap because you just weren't doing the pace for that tire. And there is a there is a little bit of a, a lip there in terms of skill that you're not at yet, where a street tire would have been more forgiving and actually would operate higher. And I remember the 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 track day we did at the Ridge. And I was on those, I was on those Pirellis. I'm on a street tire and it started raining. It started misting. And sure enough, you see all the guys that are on slicks, all the guys that are on warmers are pulling in and they don't want to go out. And I'm starting going like, you know what? I'm great. I got, a, I got a street tire. It's got silica and it's got sipings all over it. And I'm hooking up everywhere that you're not because a street tire in these conditions is actually better than a slick. Yeah, sure. So yeah, that's, that's a trap I see a lot of riders falling into when they're young and new. 
that that it's going to cost a lot of money down the line because it's usually going to mean you're going to crash. And it's the worst thing to be out on the gravel trap and to be on a full race bike where you can't just lift it up and put it on the kickstand and just no. wait. You know, yeah, it's a real, it's a real bummer. You're gonna, you're gonna sit there for a while. You gotta lean it against the wall. Yeah. You have to do the whole thing. <laughs> uh, you're gonna have to push it. Someone's gonna have to push you. You're gonna have to wait for the truck. Yeah. You don't want to be that guy. Just don't get, be that guy. Put the kickstand down, and you'll be good to go. You'll be good to go. All right, Quinn. I think we're done there. We did the jokes. We had, the, we had the talks. All right, kickstands up. Good talk. I'll see you out there. Turkey. I wish we could mic the cat. Like you don't have a. She's never oh man, a, that would be that would be an undertaking. I don't know how we would do that. Well, does she ever wear a uh, a collar or a, yeah, a collar? She's got that leash that Melanie bought her. Yeah, you could put it on that and just have her scurrying about. <laughs>